world at this point that is not absolutely adulterated by sin. Here we continue, the, the commentator writes, he was about to show himself as a God of judgment. You say, well, has God judged at this point? Absolutely, because he remains the same. God has always judged, but yet what we've found is that he hasn't judged up to this point the way he's about to do so. Right? Adam and Eve sin. First people and the first sinners. And what does he do? Clothes them with the skin of one that he shed the blood of that was innocent to cover their sin, to cover their nakedness. Then they have children, and their son kills their other son, murders him. God brings about judgment to him, but as well, mercifully protects him. And mercifully, all the while, every single sinner ever born in this world has not just been immediately the first time that they sin wiped off the face of the earth. God here is going to show, though, that He has had His limit. He goes on and He says, He was about to show Himself as a God of judgment, and as that impious, uh, impious race had filled up the measure of their iniquities, He was about to introduce a terrible display of His justice. This asks the question by many folks who ask it today, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Or if God is good, why must there be a worldwide flood? It is because God is good that there must be these things. If God was not good, then He would let sin go forever without ever being a consequence. It's the goodness of God that leadeth man to repentance. Isn't that what the Bible says? But it's also the goodness of God that brings justice and judgment because where there is wrong, God will make it right. Whether that person gets right in between or not, God will still make it right. Now God here up to this point and what He's going to do through Noah is allow Him to be a preacher of righteousness as He's building this ark and to allow for even more of a space for His mercy and grace to be received by faith. However, what's going to happen is no one except for Noah and his family are going to say yes to God and the rest will only experience God's justice at that point. Mercy and grace is being offered for another 120 years. But all that will be experienced by the rest of the world will be justice. Not one soul that died in the worldwide flood and was crushed and killed in a moment did not deserve it. There is not one soul in hell today that did not deserve it. Now, this is a harsh reality about God's justice, but understand this as well. There is not one single soul ever from the flood to today that has not been able to experience God's grace and mercy. Now, here's the, here's the tough part. We go, but couldn't He have come down and warned Him one last time? Well, He did that every day for 120 years through a man named Noah preaching. He did that every single day as they continued to remain alive even though they had rebelled against God. That's a testimony of God's character as well. But God is about to produce a new revelation of His character, and that's His justice, of which they've never seen anything quite like it. And I want you to know that even as horrifying to think about the worldwide flood is, it's nothing compared to a moment in the eternal torment that they woke up in. They went from fear, panic, destruction of their flesh by this flood, in ways that were unimaginable. The world changed, and in a moment they saw everything and realized it was too late, and when they died, it was too late again. 
This is the reality of eternity. We've got to understand that God is merciful, but that eternity is a breath away. And that there is coming a day where rebellion will be squashed out. Now for you and I who know Christ, we can rejoice in such because we can rejoice that God is just and, and, and that He will do so. But you and I cannot rejoice in, in thinking that you and I go, oh, well, look at, look at how just and righteous and good I am. No, we go all the more. It's by God's grace that I don't have to experience that. Right? Now God's repentance here is not as our repentance is. If anything, it is much deeper. Our repentance that you and I have is minuscule. As a matter of fact, I would say that the average Christian repentance isn't even repentance. Because you and I often repent of our sins by saying, uh, oh yeah, and God, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to go to bed and I'm trying to pray. I haven't prayed all day, but anyway, just, I repent of my sins today. Anything I did wrong, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Boy, what powerful repentance that is, isn't it? Now, I'm guilty of that. I'm sure all of us would say, yeah, I've had some of those. Would you and I call that repentance? We'd like to think it is. Because we know that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God that He is. Nevertheless, real repentance is not just simply a being sorry that you got caught. But it is a sorrow over sin. The act itself. Not the fact that God might be angry at us or upset with us or that he might not, uh, we might not have good fellowship. And that's something that would be sorrowful over. But we don't get sorrowful over the fact that we rebel against the one that loves us more than anyone in the world. And the reason why we don't view it that way is because we view sin far too lightly. We view God far too small. And we view ourselves far too big or sanctified. So we've got to see here it is as much deeper. One commentator puts it this way, the repentance of God is an anthropomorphic expression for the pain of the divine love at the sin of man. Meaning God's love for man is grieved over man's love for sin. Does that make sense? Let me ask you, right? Matter of fact, let's not even raise hands tonight. All right? Does God hate? Can God hate? The Bible says yes. He hates sin. And we're going to get into it in here a little bit. He's angry, not just at sin, but even at the ones that commit it. Now that's a frightening thing to think that the God who is a, a living God, as, as Hebrews tells us, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But God is a consuming fire. Sin should frighten us, not because just that sin is bad, but because of the one that it's bad against. Right? The one that it is wrong, the one that it has gone against, the one that it has rebelled against. That God will stand just. The beauty of God's judgment here, though, is this. The beauty of a phrase like, and it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him at His heart. The reason why we see this and it strikes us is not so much because we struggle with the first half, but it's because we don't understand the depths of the second half. We struggle understanding what does it mean that God repented. We get hung up on that word, but we forget the whole second half that shows us what the first half means. That God is grieved over sin. 
God shows us what real repentance ought to look like. That it is a grief. God's holy heart, if you will, is broken over the condition that His people have gone to because they have rebelled and rejected Him. God is the giver of good gifts and God doesn't give bad gifts. Everything He gives is good. Matter of fact, in the garden, everything that He had given was good, but Satan goes, yeah, but you know, He didn't let you have one thing. He gave you the millions of other things all around you, but you don't have the one thing. Now he's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're right, actually. And I deserve that one thing. I ought to be able to see what that one thing's all about. What's he holding back from me? One thing. But he's given you all of this. Sin blinds us to all that God has given to us. Sin blinds us from all that God would love to give to us. But we won't receive what God has for us without faith. And a heart that is full of faith will be a heart that is not so full of sin and rebellion as the world had gotten to at this point. God's love has sorrow over His creation's rebellion. He is not the mean little Joseph who is with a magnifying glass and an ant or salt on a slug. No, He cares much deeper than what we imagine. Here's what we often do. We either, one, want to emphasize God's justice and His judgment and His wrath and what happens is sometimes we use it as a scare tactic, which that's not healthy and that's not right either. Or we underemphasize it and just go, you know, well, the Bible says God is love, and so God is love, and, you know, He's just all sweet and nice and kind. And He is. But He's also that in the midst of judgment. God is loving and kind while He judges. Even hell itself isn't as bad as what I deserve. But we don't think about hell that way, do we? We don't think of sin that way. And it's because we have the wrong view of who God is in the first place. God has revealed who He is. We just simply need to trust that. And to believe that that's good enough. Now God is sorrowful over the state of man. And is not only grieved over their sin, but as well as what is about to come. When I did get in trouble a few times as a kid, and it only happened a few times, trust me, there we just we won't ask any resources, right? But the few times I had to get a, a whooping, I remember hearing this all the time. Y'all might have heard something like this too. This hurts me. Okay, yeah, you heard it before, didn't you? Right? This hurts me more than it hurts you. And I always thought to myself, No, it don't. And it never did. <laughs> You don't got red marks. You ain't got a mouth full of soap. And I had that a lot. Your head's not in a corner, right? None of that stuff. It's not your TV. Take away. None of those things happen to you. I'm the one hurting here. You know something? What we think about this, mom and dad might say that, and you and I might be going, ain't no way they mean that. God looks at this and He mourns over what is taking place. We've got to see that God is love. But He lovingly judges. But even in the midst of it, because He is perfect in His justice and He is perfect in His love for man, it grieves His heart over sin. You might be saved today, right? If you're saved today, praise God, right? Your sin is, is covered, it's paid for, right? You ain't got to work. Right? When the Lord sees you, now He looks and He sees only the righteousness of His Son. Praise God! Nevertheless, 
Don't think for a moment that that Holy Spirit inside of you does not grieve when you sin. We make the Lord the Spirit within us that He has given to us to convict us of sin, to protect us from sin, to keep us from sin, and to keep us from falling further and further into sin, which we would just do in our flesh left to ourselves. Don't think for a moment that it does not bother God when you sin. He might look from His heavenly throne and only see the righteousness of His Son for eternity's sake, but right now today, He cares how we're living. He cares the condition of our heart. Phillips writes, the word is highly expressive for it reveals the heartache of God over the rebellion and wickedness of men. His loving kindness was scorned. His patience abused. His offer of salvation ignored. It stabbed him to his heart. Phillips puts it in a way where you're going, well, I never really thought of it that way. We must understand the depth of sin. You see, we often preach about sin this way, and I do. That sin spits in the face of God, and it does. It is walking up to the king and saying, you have no rule. That's audacity, isn't it? It is an audacious thing to sin against God. But we don't think of it that way either, do we? It not only spits in God's face, but it strikes at his heart for man. The thing that used to be worse for me as a kid, and I don't know about you, was not so much when mom or dad got angry at me, but when they laid this one down. Are you mad? No, son. I'm disappointed. Or I'm hurt. That hurt worse. Because I'm going... You had a right to be angry, right? I'd be all right if you're angry, because you'll get over being angry, but I hurt you. I would wonder what our life would look like if we understood the hurt that we cause the Lord. Do you understand the hurt that we have caused the Lord? That the Father Himself turned away from His own Son as He placed your sin upon His Son, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Innocent One, to cover your sins, the guilty? I sometimes wonder, and we don't know what happens all the way there, all the details of Genesis 3, but I wonder how God is feeling when He, for the first time, and I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who is shedding that innocent blood to clothe Adam and Eve there in the garden. I wonder how He's feeling there. We don't see sin how God sees sin. But if we could even catch a glimpse of it, it would change. How we view chapter 6 of Genesis how we view God's judgment, how we view God's love, and how we view our own sinful nature. Guzik writes, God's sorrow at man and the grief in his heart are striking. This does not mean that creation was out of control, nor does it mean that God hoped for something better but was unable to achieve it. Right? God didn't fail here. right? God knew all along that this was how things would turn out, but our text clearly tells us that as God sees His plan for the ages unfold, it affects Him. God is not unfeeling in the face of human sin and rebellion. Many people have the view of God of the theists that, that many of them have the same view as uh, the sort of theists who uh, helped create our, our nation and things of that nature. And They meant well to believe that there was a higher power at least, but they believed God to have simply made the clock, wound it up, and let it go. Unaffected by what we mere mortals do, unaffected by our day-to-day life, I want you to know, God cares for every moment of your life. If not, the cross is of none effect. If not, the cross means nothing. 
What Jesus did for us was not merely for our eternity's sake, but for our daily life's sake, for moment by moment, that we would depend upon Him for strength, for repentance, for faith, for every gift that He could ever give to us. You see, only God can be angry and sorrowful at the same time over the sinner. Psalm 711 talks about God is angry not just with the sin, but with the sinner, with the wicked daily. Yet, here what we find is that God is not surprised that this happened, for He knew that this would happen. We're going to get into that in just a moment. We see that He's not surprised by this, but yet He's still affected by it because as these things are being worked out, think about this. Was God the Father surprised by Jesus the Son's death on the cross? No. He had already viewed Him as being slain before the foundations of the world. That was the plan all along. Yet nevertheless, there on the cross we find Jesus crying out, the famous cry, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? We must never think that God is unaffected. God cares. But God's person and purposes never change. However, His practices do and how He brings His person to be known and purposes to be carried out amongst His creation in the sense of these dispensational periods of time and how God is working out His what, what theologians might call the theocratic kingdom. Theos, meaning God. Cratic, meaning rule. How God is ruling today through mortal man. Think about this. We've got Adam in the garden. We've got Noah in the flood. We're going to have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the law and then going all the way down through following the, the judges and the kings. Then Christ, the true prophet, priest, and king. And now today in the church age where Christ is the, the head of the church and is building His body and His bride, and then one day He will draw the body and bride up to Himself to unite together, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We find that God is continuing to have these different people and offices and things in place to, to rule rightly and to rule justly. But what happens is you and I, when we fail to give God all authority and all control over our lives, this is where things get off kilter. Yet all the while, God remains sovereign and in control, knowing all these things. God is not surprised, but yet He is sorrowful. Does that make sense? As we look here at God's decree, He, he says in verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man. Notice that. I will. When you say, I will, we ought to add a parenthesis or something after that of going, I will try because that's what happens. Honey, I will take out the trash. Or, honey, I will walk the dog. I'll try. Because we don't always do what we say we will, do we? I don't. Maybe you do. I'll, you'll have to show me how to do it. We say, I will. And when we say it, it doesn't always mean that. We want it to, but when God says, I will, it means He will. Every time. Every time God has said He will, he has, right? Now as we look at this, he says, I will destroy man, but notice this, whom I have created. Now if we read verse 7 by itself, it seems as if God is emotionless. Like He just doesn't really care. I made Him, but I'll just wipe Him off. It's not a big deal. But if we read it after verse 6, it has a different weight to it. 
and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. There's grief in that sentence. Both man and beast, the creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth. It grieves me that I have made them. Because, as we talked about last week, He made them and He said, not just that they were good, but He looked back at everything and said, it's very good. He had walked with man. He lived with man. Man, God's presence was with man. It was as it was supposed to be. It was as we would look at the word itself, shalom. Meaning a peace, a communion, a fellowship, something much deeper than just saying, hey, how you doing? It is to have peace with God. That is the, the goal of Scripture to reconcile us. That's the idea of the word reconciliation. To make peace when there was not peace with somebody who you had war against. That Christ has now reconciled us unto God. We see God's decree here, I will. Sorensen writes, Therefore, God determined to destroy the human race whom He had created from the face of the earth along with most of the realm of nature. And as a matter of fact, let's pause there for a moment. The whole world at this point is going to change. Things that were valleys are going to be hills and things that were hills are going to be valleys. Things that were standing are going to be left demolished. And He's going to start fresh and anew, if you will. He continues, he says, Again, the word transit as repented has the idea of regret, sorrow. The word translated as destroy has a sense to wipe out, obliterate, or exterminate. God determined to essentially wipe the slate clean and start over again. And notice who God is starting over with. One that received His grace by faith and walked with Him. Keep that in mind when we think about the end of all things. Now I want to give you this verse tonight. Because although God will bring catastrophe to His creation, He will bring comfort through judgment. Proverbs 16 tells us this. I'll turn there for you so you don't have to, okay? It's just an add-in tonight. Proverbs 16, verse number 3 and 4 tells us, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. I believe that was Noah's life. Verse 4 says, The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. We think about this, what is the day of evil? I believe here we get a glimpse of it in chapter 6. The day, time of judgment. That God knows it is coming. But why? Why does God create judgment? Because it reveals who He is. You ever thought about this? We talked about this a long time ago. We would not know God's grace or His mercy if there was not sin. We would not know God's perfect righteousness and justice if there was not sin. We would not know God's wrath if there was not sin. But we also wouldn't understand His love if there was not sin. Because God loves even me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. God commendeth. His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. In the middle of my sin, God says, yep, that's, that's it. I love Him. You and I don't understand that sort of love. And I'm not sure that we can with our flesh. But one day, we're going to stand in the presence of love self. 
this displays and reveals His character. And as we've talked about on Sunday mornings for a couple weeks now, God is always seeking to reveal Himself to His creation. Why? Not just so He can go, and this is how many take it, look at me! It's not just that sort of idea. But it's that way it's, look at me and live. Look at my glory. See who I am so you can receive my grace. So you can know me. So you can walk with me. So you can be redeemed and reconciled to me. So you can live with me and be in my presence. Not because God is lonely, but because God desires to reveal Himself so that we would respond to Him, so that we would know Him, so we would not have to live without Him, not just in this life, but for eternity for that matter. God prophesied, though, about the coming comfort that He would bring through catastrophe in the name that Noah was given. Genesis 5.29 And He called His name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Here's what we find. God's comfort always comes after His judgment because His character never changes. God must judge the world, but the purpose is to dispense His grace all the more to those who will receive it by faith. We don't know God as Christians until we suffer. We don't get to know Him more until we suffer some more. Until we go through tribulation some more. Why do afflictions happen? They're not meaningless, but so we would know God more in the affliction, in the fire, in the difficulty. Not just to go, okay, good. Whew, he brought us out of that one. Now I'm sure we're done. Coast is clear. No. But until I continue to know God more, I can never face what's to come. God is always revealing Himself to us so that we would trust Him more, so that we would know Him more, so that we would be able to then experience whatever else continues to come because each one, it has taken us more and more Deeper and deeper and deeper into a knowledge of Him, into a trust of Him. So what God is doing here is to do something far greater. When He says, I'm going to destroy these things, He's doing it. Why? Because there's one man who's going to know Him a whole lot deeper. His name is Noah. God reveals Himself to Noah by grace. Noah receives, responds by faith. And it's going to be through Noah and through his lineage and all the way down the line that not just Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is going to come, but that David's going to come, and through him, that Christ Jesus, the promised seed from chapter 3, is going to come to redeem mankind, to offer salvation. God's character is revealed through his attributes and his actions. Comfort after catastrophe points to the new heavens and new earth after the terrible great tribulation period. Turn with me, and this is where we'll close tonight. Turn with me to Revelation. Revelation 19, we find God's judgment. Perhaps even more of a deep description of it than even the flood. And perhaps even more frightening because God has spent the previous 16 chapters already telling us about His judgment on earth. Revelation is not just what's to come in the future we're talking about today. We got three chapters. First chapter is, I, John, saw Jesus. That's the revelation. It's not John's revelation. It's Jesus revealing himself to John to reveal himself to us. And what's to come? What he's done, 
right? Who he is, what he's like, what he's done, what he's doing, what he's going to do. Then he gives chapter 2 and chapter 3 and going, here's some churches and I'm watching and I'm looking and I'm wanting to purify you and if these things don't get corrected, I'll come and snuff you out. He says that to his own people. We've got to remember that. But then from chapter 4 through 19, we've got tribulation. You know how long that is? Seven years. Seven-year focus. God gives great detail to it. Not so that you and I would be looking for an antichrist, but so that you and I, who aren't going to be there, will be looking for the Christ. Because I'm not looking for an antichrist. I'm not looking for signs of an antichrist. I'm looking for my Christ, my Savior. He said He's going to call me out of here one day, whether I'm dead or not, dead in Christ arise first, right? Then those of us who are alive and remain shall be called together in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever and forever. That's all I'm looking forward to. I'm either going to die and get to see Him, or I'm going to be alive and all of a sudden, poof, boom, He's going to call me out. I don't know what it's going to sound like, except it's going to be faster than that. And everything will change. He shows such detail of judgment. And in verse, chapter 19, verse 11, John's writing, he says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Those are capitalized for a reason. Jesus is faithful and true. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. Jesus isn't coming back to play nice. He's not coming back to play tiddlywinks. He's not coming back to ride on a donkey into town. He's coming on a white horse for war. To make war. His eyes are flame of fire. His head were many crowns because he has authority. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven followed upon white horses clothed and fine linen white and clean. It's purity. It's holiness. And out of his mouth grow the sharp sword that with it should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It's much deeper and much worse than Genesis 6. God's going to bring judgment. What does this tell us? Is Revelation 19 and Genesis 6 telling us that God is mean and just wanting to judge and play whack-a-mole people? No. It tells us how good and kind He is that even one soul would be saved, let alone the multitude and infinite mercy that has been offered to mankind since the very first sin in the garden until Revelation 19. That people can be saved and come to know Him, not by their works, but by His work. And this is pointing us to what Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 were pointing us to. And even chapter 6 in, in this account of Noah's flood is that there might be judgment and catastrophe coming, but there is comfort. Where does the comfort come? The comfort comes in chapter 20. Christ steps foot back on this earth, begins His millennial reign a thousand years, where He will then rule with a rod of iron, correcting and reproving the nations. The devil, Satan, will be bound for a thousand years. That's good news, isn't it? That's comforting, isn't it? It's then comforting that even though there's a loosing of Satan in the same chapter of chapter 20, 
And there's comfort even knowing that there's going to be a great white throne judgment. And there's comfort in this. In chapter 20, verse number 14. And death and hell were cast into a lake of fire. This is the second death. And there's comfort even in verse 15. That whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in a lake of fire. It's comforting to the soul that knows Christ. But it should be horrifying to those that don't. And it ought to grieve you as it grieved God. Does that make sense? And then we've got two of the most beautiful chapters that there is in the Bible. Chapter 21 and 22 show us God's comfort. You know how long God's comfort is going to last in chapter 21 and 22? Forever. It will not end. What God is doing in Noah's day is He's showing catastrophe, judgment must come because I'm God and I'm good. And because I'm God and because I'm good, I will bring comfort. Notice this. You ever read the, the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets? It, there's some tough reads. You know why? I, Jeremiah, heard the word of the Lord and told everybody, y'all need to repent or else y'all going to die. God's going to bring an army. He's going to bring a sword, pestilence, famine. It's going to be bad. Wow, such encouragement, right? But what does God always include? But I will not leave my people forever. I will not leave them in captivity forever. I will comfort my people. I will rebuild Zion. I will draw my scattered people back to Jerusalem, to Israel, to my presence. Why? Because when God reveals Himself, He reveals all of Himself. And He's showing not just that I'm a God of judgment, but I'm a God of comfort. God desires to comfort His people. And when we approach Genesis 6, and we continue to see what's happening in Noah's day, and let's be honest, what we're seeing in our day, here's the comforting thing. Though we're living in the midst of some catastrophe, and there's going to be even more to come, the real stuff hasn't even gotten here yet, y'all. Comfort is on the other side. Though you might be in the darkest tribulation or affliction of your life, you go, I've never experienced something this difficult, so challenging, so hard, so faith-challenging as well. Comfort's on the other side of it. It's about perspective. God reveals Himself not so that we'd be confused, but so we'd trust Him and know who He really is, what He's really like. And our God still, though He might be a God of judgment, is a God of great comfort. But you will never experience the comfort of God without faith. God shows you Himself by grace. But the only way that comfort is ever experienced in our life is by faith. And we're going to pull a close here because next week we're going to get into Noah's character. Why Noah? You ever wanted that? Why him? It's the same thing we talked about tonight. Grace was given, but it had to be received. That's the difference. The difference between you right now in this Bible study and a soul in hell. Grace was received by faith. Grace and mercy is ever there. God doesn't run out of it. 
but it must be received. Sadly, in Noah's day, billions refused to receive it. Sadly, in our day, billions are refusing to receive it. And by the way, there are still millions that have never heard. That ought to grieve our heart tonight. I want to share this with you and we'll, we'll pray. I know I took a couple minutes. I, I couldn't share it mostly for, for privacy's sake and that sort of thing. There's a church uh, that, where there's believers in, a, in Senegal, Africa. We just received a, a video uh, through the grapevine, through a missionary that my home church had helped support. We had raised 30 plus thousand dollars to send them Bibles. They hadn't had Bibles in that country given or received since the 70s. And we had received a video years ago when we got to do this, five, six years ago, I guess, maybe four or five years ago, somewhere in there. And they were weeping and crying just seeing these stacks of Bibles that they got to get. I don't know the last time I ever did that when I opened up my Bible. But the newest video was this. The local Muslim government is kicking them out of their church. They've got no choice. They've got nowhere to go. They've got nothing else that they can do. Things like that ought to grieve us. One, because we go, oh, there's people suffering for the name of Christ. But two, there's people that don't know no better. All they know is to hate God. All that these folks in Genesis 6 knew was to hate God. Our hearts should be grieved that there are those who would rather go down hating God than receive His mercy and grace. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. We thank You that we could look to Your Word God, we thank you that we can look at such a a tough passage and while we see your judgment, we see your comfort that you promised to your people that will receive your promises, your word by faith. God, we thank you for the the judgment that's to come. God, that you're going to refine this earth. You're going to purify your people. You're going to show that you are righteous and holy and just. But you're also going to continue to show that you're kind and gracious. We thank you that those of us who are in Christ one day will get to experience an everlasting and eternal, a forever comfort being in Your presence. We long and look forward to that day. And until that day, God, may we be grieved over our own sin. May we be grieved and sorrowful over the sin of the world and the fact that there are folks who do not know You. God, while we can rejoice in Your justice and Your judgment, may we not be so prideful as to be glad that there are those who are going to receive that instead of Your mercy. We pray that folks would receive your, receive your promise, receive salvation by faith. And God, that we would be grieved enough to tell them about it. Lord, we love You. We thank You. We pray for Your help, for Your guidance, Your protection, that we would trust in You. Use us. And Lord, that You would uh, be able to bring us back again safely so we can gather and worship You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Y'all have a blessed night. Now, Lord willing, we'll see you guys later this weekend.